Welcome to Roots Radio, weekly high school Bible studies located at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. John chapter 10 this morning, verse 18, is where we're going to pick up. So let's read it together and let us pray. Actually, we'll start in verse 17. It says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to worship you and to uh, be in your word together. We pray this morning that you would, uh, Lord, speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. Uh, from your word. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you do for us. God, you've been so good to us. And Lord, as we look at your deity this morning and who you are, Lord, we pray that you'd open our understanding, God, that this would make sense to us, that we would see it in a new light for what it is, and uh, we would take your word and apply it. So Lord, we love you and thank you for all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, last week we kind of started uh, well, we did start chapter 10. We didn't kind of just start it. We did start it. John chapter 10, looking at Jesus as the door, the shepherd. And we were supposed to get through a three, kind of a three-point sermon, but we didn't get there. And so this morning, we're going to kind of pick up the tail end of last week, which is the Son of God. So last week, we looked at the door, the claim that Jesus made that I am the door. Uh, the claim that he made as the good shepherd, and this morning, the claim that he makes as the Son of God. And so that's kind of the, the, the intro into everything. If you haven't been here, you can listen to the podcast if you want to catch up and, and kind, of, kind of follow along with us. You can listen to that. But this morning, we're going to focus in on verse 18 really as, as kind of the, the home base for us. And what Jesus is saying here, but in, in verse 7, it kind of marked, until chapter 11, it marks this period of time of great conflict that Jesus is having. It's, it's known, this portion of scripture is known as the great conflict. And so Jesus is having this debate, this conflict with the religious leaders over um, a miracle that he performed, a miracle on the Sabbath. They're uh, having a debate over who he is claiming to be. They're having a conflict over the things that he's doing. And so this morning, he's going to kind of bring it all to a head uh, in the claims that he makes, starting in verse 17, where we left off um, looking at Jesus as a good shepherd. He says, Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Jesus makes the comparison in the previous verses of a hireling and a shepherd. The difference between the two. Someone who is a shepherd, who is personally invested, who owns the flock, he's going to do much more than someone who's just hired to do a job. And we looked at kind of the contrast of someone who works for a restaurant and someone who owns a restaurant. Someone, have you ever been to a restaurant with just terrible service? That waitress or that waiter or that hostess could care less about you or the restaurant itself. They're like, I work at Red Robin. I don't care. I'm here for eight hours on my feet. And then I have to, I just, I'm just here to do a job. Be, in comparison to the owner of Red Robin being there, coming and serving you personally, there would be a difference in service. 
And, and in that, Jesus is saying, a hireling just is here to do a job because, and they flee when something goes wrong because they don't care. And Jesus is making the correlation here that he is personally invested into his flock. He loves them. And because he loves them, he lays down his life for them. He lays down his life for them. A hireling, when something comes along, a, a sheep that is being attacked by a wolf or a bear or a tiger or a a mongoose or a, a, a viper of some sort. If there is that kind of thing going on, the shepherd will put himself between the animal that is attacking and his flock because he cares for it, because he has been personally invested into it. And so he puts himself in harm's way in protection of his flock compared to a hireling who's like, I'm not, I'm not, no way. I have no stock in this. What is, it doesn't really matter to me. I'm out of here. And Jesus is making that correlation, that he is personally invested in them. In verse 17, he says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. In the, the crucifixion story, it seems as if Jesus is powerless this entire time. From the Garden of Gethsemane to the very moment that he breathes his last upon the cross, it's almost as if Jesus is being tortured at, at some point against his will. That he is being captured and all of this is, Jesus is just as surprised as we are that this is happening. That in fact, Jesus at, at any point could have come down off of the cross, at any point been unarrested, at any point when they punched him in the face and say, prophesy who hit us or who hit you, he could have told them. At any point, Jesus could have stopped what was happening. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas was coming to him, remember he had told Judas that night, go and do what you're going to do. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And in that, we have this wonderful realization, I think, that Jesus allowed all of this to happen. At no point was he forced to be born lay in a manger, live a perfect life. No, no point was he at any compulsion or forced to do anything. But yet he did it. He very willingly went to the cross, although it seems as if it was out of his control. As they whip him, as they scourge him 39 times, you think if Jesus was in control, he could have stopped them at any point, right? I mean, if he is God, he could have stopped them from doing that. When they mock him as he's on the cross, they say, come down. If you are the son of God, come down off of the cross. He very well could have. But what held him there? And I think this verse, when you read it and you, you see that Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. That Jesus very very much so, desired to go to the cross. He was not forced by the Father. He was not tricked by the Holy Spirit to do this. But he very much desired to do this. He doesn't have to. 
When man sinned in the garden, God did not have to save us. We very, here, here is how, how it went. We sinned, and the consequence of that is death. It's very simple in that way. God said, here's the contract. Here is the covenant that if you do this side of it, do not eat of any of the fruit of the garden, or do not eat of this tree, but any other tree you can eat of freely, totally fine. But the day that you eat of this tree is as if you saying that this contract that we have, we're going to tear it up. It's null, it's void, it's done. This is your way out of the contract if you would like. And the day that man ate of the fruit, that day, man very much so deserved death. It was on his way to eternal death. Separation from God. And God could have at any point just said that, that is how it was supposed. This is it. This was the rule. You broke the rule. Therefore, this is the consequence. But in that moment, God, since the foundation of the world, had in mind to not only make you, but also to save you and to redeem you and buy you back from the very sin that you committed, to buy you back from death. And when you read those verses, Jesus says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. What we see here is that Jesus very willingly and obediently laid down his life for us. No one, no one forced him. No one could have forced him. Not Rome, not the Jewish people, no one. Because every time that Jesus gets in these kind of situations where he's in this, this kind of conflict and they pick up rocks to chuck at him, what happens? He moves through them as though he was untouchable. You're going to see that at the end of this chapter. They pick up rocks to, to stone him. And he just kind of like maneuvers like LeBron James through a defense. Just kind of, I don't know how it works, but they are frozen or something. And he just kind of, no, you're not going to kill me today. I'll tell you when you can. And what you see from that is that Jesus laid down his life for us. No one forced him or coerced him or tricked him. He did it in and of himself. And what's really interesting is the book of Hebrews talks about how wonderful salvation is. That angels look on at what we get to experience, this relationship with God, how God offered himself as a sacrifice of sin to save us. And angels long to know what that is like. Isn't that kind of cool? But here's what Hebrews chapter, tw uh, chapter 2, verse 16 says, that aid was not offered to angels. And what he's talking about is that when the third of the angels fell, when they rebelled against God and they decided that we're going to follow Satan and we're going to fall, that in that, God did not offer to them a way of escape. Their choice was their choice. God does not offer salvation to angels, but he offers it to mankind, which is unique only to humanity. It's not offered to angels. That's pretty cool. Now, knowing that, what compelled Jesus then to go to the cross? Knowing full, way, full well what awaited him. Jesus knew what awaited him. 
He knew that he would be lashed. He would be scourged. He knew that his face would be pounded in. He knew that his beard would be plucked out. He knew that he would be spit upon. He knew that his hands would be driven to a cross. He knew that his feet would be driven to a cross. He knew that he would die from he would die from not being able to breathe. He knew that a spear would be thrust through his side. He knew that his father would have to turn away and there would be separation, a break in relationship. Knowing all of that, how many of you, when you know something's painful, you avoid it? The, the dentist. We avoid it until we absolutely cannot take it. No offense, Zach. But we avoid it. I, right now, i got something going on, and I know I have to go to the dentist. But I'm going to wait until I can't take it, right? Because I know it's going to hurt. So I just kind of like, my dentist is fantastic. He's amazing. Doesn't hurt that bad. But still, it's a dentist and the drilling and all of that. When we know something is painful, we will avoid it as much as we can. We avoid exercise because it's painful. <laughs> we don't want, I don't, we avoid it as much as, oh, it's raining, therefore, I can't go to the gym, even though it's indoors. <laughs> the weights are heavier with all the moisture and stuff. I just, I want to pull something. My upper dorsimus. We don't want to, when things are painful, we avoid them. Especially when we know what awaits us. Jesus knowing full well what awaited him on the cross. You remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and not to like spoil the rest of the Gospel of John for you, but remember as he's there in the garden and he's sweating with great drops of blood. That kind of like insane anxiety because he knew full well what awaited him. That cup that he, he says, if this cup can pass from me, what was that cup that he's speaking of? It is the full wrath of God that he was about to drink. The full wrath of God that he was going to experience. Knowing what awaited him, he still went to the cross. No one forcing him, no one twisting his arm. What compelled him then? John 3.16 tells us what compels him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The compelling force for Jesus on the cross, what held him there was not nails, but what held him there was the love that he had for you and I. No man held him there. No amount of nails could have held him on that cross if he decided to come down. What held him there was his amazing and wonderful, unfailing love for you and I. He lays down his life and he victoriously took it back up again. When he cried out, it is finished, he voluntarily, listen, he voluntarily gave up his spirit. Even death had to yield to him. It wasn't as if Jesus is saying, I'm losing it, I'm, I'm fading here, I'm just going to give up my spirit. Jesus says, I give it up. And then he died. Because he had power to lay it down and he had power to take it up. 
When he says it is finished, I yield up my spirit. When that happened, Jesus gave permission to give his spirit up. Who is this guy? Who is this guy who can do that? This is God in flesh. This is God in flesh. Only God has power over death. Only God has power over sin. And what you see in, these, in this one little verse, that if you haven't highlighted it or started or circled it or, or remember, you need to know this verse and, and remind yourself of this verse, that Jesus laid down his life for you. He didn't have to, but he chose to because he loved you. Moving on. Therefore, there was a division, again, among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he was a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And what's funny is that a lot of times we talk about the unity that's in Christ, but Jesus actually says, I will divide homes. And being the door, a door divides room from room, doesn't it? I mean, that's the, the inventor of the door rests peacefully in his grave because it works. It just, it divides. I mean, it can't, there's a door there. Anyway, it opens up, it closes, it divides space. It really does. I googled it. That's what doors do. Jesus said in the previous verses, I am the door, meaning that either you're on one side or you're on the other. He brings about a division in the sense that either you're for him, you're in, or you're not. How many of you ever tried to stand with a door closed in between it? One foot in, one foot out in a room, and you got a door. It, it just, again, the inventor of the door rests peacefully in his grave because it works. Either you're in the room or you're not. If the door is closed, you're on one side or the other. And, and here, the, there's a division between them, and some of them say, this guy's, this guy's nuts. Do you hear what he just said? He, who has power over, watch, I'll take your life right now. Who can say that? And the others are saying, look at what he just did. He opened the eyes of the blind. Who can do that? And that is a decision that we all have to come to grips with. Either you are all in or you are not. Either you believe or you don't. Either you are a yes or you are a no. There is no Switzerland in the decision where you're like, I'm just kind of staying out of this whole thing. To, to say no to Jesus or to say I have made no decision is to say no to Jesus. Everyone has to come a, to a decision when it comes to Jesus. Verse 22 says, Now it was as the Feast of Dedication of Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, this is his third declaration as we're going to move into this little portion of scripture. This is his third declaration as the Son of God. And they kind of surround him. They kind of get him into a, a spot and they just kind of swarm him. Kind of like the vipers. You know, we're going to have a showdown. And like old, and they're going to dance and sing kind of those musical fights. Anyway, not like that at all. Sorry to put that picture in your mind. Anyway, they are going to come around and it's basically like, we're going to have a showdown right now. Who are you? Just tell us plainly. Get just out with it. Who are you? 
And Jesus is going to tell them exactly who he is. Now, some say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Right? Have you heard that? He never claimed. Now, necessarily, he never claimed to be God. According to Oath Gramshire. <laughs> Here we go. You're going to see his claim and who he is. They ask him flat out, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Is that who you are? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. He basically tells them, I've told you already who I am. And if that didn't do it for you, I've done a whole lot of miracles that should be evidence of who I am. He told them in chapter 5 who he was. The first time they picked up rocks to stone him. And the reason they pick up rocks is not just because they're like, I just I want to pick up some rocks right now. Anytime the, that, the reason they do that is the penalty for blasphemy is to be stoned. Anyone who would claim to be God or to have the same kind of power or to be like God, the penalty would be picking up rocks and killing them with rocks. And so every time that they do that, it's evidence of the claim that he has made. And so people are like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Jews certainly understood who he was claiming to be. And so Jesus says in these verses, I've told you already, I told you you do not believe, and I have done miracle after miracle to show you who I am, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. The reason you don't believe is because you are not my sheep. That's kind of a, an interesting topic we're not going to go into. But he says, if you would believe, you would be of my sheep. But the fact that you don't believe, it, it's evidence that you're not of my flock, of my sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In verse 28, it says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I want you to underline those words. Snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says in verse 28, who he is, as plain as day, my sheep who hear my voice and they follow me, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. And guess what? That eternal life is secure in Christ. No one can snatch them from me. As the shepherd, you would see kind of wolves jump over the fence. And have you ever seen Lambert the sheepish lion? Have you ever seen that cartoon? He's like a scared little lion. He thinks he's a sheep. No? It's a classic. I'm pushing 30. So maybe that's why you don't remember. But Lambert the sheepish lion. No? Oh, man, look it up. YouTube, it's wonderful. It's a great little story about how he's like really scared. And then he's like, I'm a lion. Why should I be scared? Roar! And he gets all crazy. But anyway, what were we talking about? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He would say that this, this type of flock, no one can just jump in and snatch them out. Not one day where someone just gets pulled out and I don't know where they are. If you are in Christ, then you are in Christ. There's eternal security in Jesus. That if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, guess what? You have eternal life. Eternal security in Jesus. Now, a lot of people ask that question. Can you lose your salvation? 
And some people say, absolutely not. Look, no one can snatch you from their hand. That's true. No one can just snatch you from Jesus. At no point can you just lose it where you're like, I lost my keys. It's not like you just wake up and you have lost your salvation. But I do believe, I do believe that at some point you can walk away from it. I do believe that you can know what salvation is and know who Jesus is and say, I know exactly what that is and I don't want it. And Jesus being a gentleman does not force salvation on you. It doesn't force it on you. But I do believe what this is saying, that if you are a part of the flock of God, if you are a sheep and you follow Jesus, that at no point can anyone just snatch you away. I believe that people go through times and struggles where they walk away from the Lord and they drift and they backslide. But listen, the minute you turn back to the Lord, it's not as if you're in danger of of going to hell. But listen, we don't want to ever leave that up to chance. Now, it's a really difficult subject, eternal security and whether or not we can lose it or, or gain it. I believe that if you are in Christ and you are in Christ and you're going to heaven, But do you ever want to leave something that important up to chance? Your eternal security, meaning eternal, I mean not eternal security, but your eternal home, do you really want to leave that up to chance? Do you ever want to, do you want to be left doubting? And you look at the life that you're living and how you're living it and you're going, well, I just, am I, if I were to die right now, where would I go? It's not something you want to leave up to chance or to be in doubt over. And so we want to be walking as close to Jesus as we possibly can. That we are so in line with him, so in step with him, that we're not left at some point of going, I just don't know. Today, if you are at that place, I encourage you, turn back to the Lord. If you're like, I just don't know. Jesus is right there, available to you, as you are. As you are, in your sin, as you are, Jesus will accept you as you are. But you got to turn back to him. And what Jesus is saying, I believe here, is that if you are in Christ, no one's, no one's going to snatch you out of here. There's no possible way. The grip of God is upon you. No one can snatch you away. Now, you may have a different view, and that's Okay. But it's one of those things where I just don't know. Can I say that right now? I just don't know. Eternal security, can we lose our salvation? I don't know. But I don't want to be left, I don't want to leave it up to chance. So I'm just going to keep walking with Jesus. Amen? Moving on. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Now to all those who said Jesus never claimed to be God, clearly have never read John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. This is as plain as day. It's as plain as it could possibly be. The word one here means not identical persons, but one in essence. One in essence. And what does that mean? It means that the Father is God and the Son is God. But the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son. 
They are two distinct persons, but yet both, in essence, are God, are one. He is speaking of unity, not identity. He's speaking of their unity, their unifying factor as they are God, part of the triune God that we believe in. That God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That they are the Godhead, three in one. All three are God, be yet very distinct persons. And so when Jesus says that my Father and I are one, look at their response. If Jesus is not claimed to be God, then they are just really like picking up stones. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They know exactly what he's saying by their response. It's evidence of who he claims to be. And Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father, for which of those works do you stone me? <laughs> it's funny. Now, I've done a lot of good things. Now, which of those good things are you going to stone me for? Which, is it healing the blind? That's stone worthy. Is it because uh, in the next chapter I'm going to raise someone back from the dead? Is that... Okay, is it because I have multiplied food? Is that why you're going to kill me? G name of the good works that I've done, which one are you going to murder me for? And this is their response. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Look, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself God. So their response to what Jesus has said is, you have claimed to be God, therefore you must die. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Yes, he did. Right there. Jesus answered them, it is, not, it, is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them God's, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know, the, know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Now, verse 34 is a, a verse that has caused a lot of confusion within the cults. And in in Mormonism and stuff like that, they, they say that we are gods, that we are God's literal children, that someday we will be gods um, of our own planets, that we then get to populate and all of that. That is not true. That is a falsity. False. That is not true. We are not gods. And Psalm 82.6 is where Jesus is quoting this from. He is using scripture to, to prove his point of what he is saying. Psalm 82.6 is uh, it's kind of this scene in a courtroom that God has assembled the judges of the earth to warn them that they too one day will be judged. That's Psalm 82.6. And Jesus quotes that verse. And, and that word gods is the word Elohim in the Hebrew, which is, can also mean judge. Okay, God or judge. It's one of God's names is the judge over everything, Elohim. God is judge, right? And what Jesus is saying here is, if God has claimed you to be judges, 
then if, if God is called human judges gods, then why should they stone him for applying the same title to himself? Jesus is not saying that you are literally gods that someday will be worshipped. He's using this to prove his point that if I am claiming to be the son of God and God himself calls you the judge over that, Judges of, of the world. He's assembled that in Psalm 82. If God has said that, then why would you stone me for this claim? If God has said it. And, and here they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And I want you again, this again points us back up to verse 18. Jesus was living for a specific moment, a specific time, and that was the cross. And until that time was to come, no man could lay a finger on him until he said it was okay. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter whips out a sword and cuts some dude's head, uh, <laughs> he missed, and he cuts some guy's ear off. Now, if you're going to cut someone's head off, it's this way, right? Not this way. Because if you cut someone's ear, it's coming slicing. I don't I know what Peter was doing. Me and his eyes closed. He's like, yeah, ah! or whatever. I don't know. We don't know. I find it really funny that he misses head, cuts off ear. Anyway, in that, Jesus speaks to Peter and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he picks up the guy's ear and sticks it back on the side of his head like, like nothing ever happened. And he looks at Peter and says, do you not know that at any moment I could call legion of angels to come? Peter, this is what's supposed to happen. And no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Those guys who came to arrest Jesus could not arrest him unless Jesus allowed them to. A legion of angels is somewhere of, of 1,000 to 6,000 soldiers, a, a Roman legion. I remember when the demon who was possessed and they asked him, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion could have been upwards of 5,000 5, demons just kind of stuffed into this one body. It's a lot. Maybe they're like compact size. I don't know. We're going to wrap this up because it's getting weird. But here's what I'm saying. Jesus said to Peter, at any point, I could call down a legion of angels. Peter, I, I'm doing this because I love you. They're arresting me, not because they have power to, but because I'm allowing them to. Because I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for your sin. Everything that Jesus did and why he did it was because he loved you. Every moment, every healing, every miracle, every, every moment of his life, he lived towards this one moment that he would die on a cross and rise again from the grave because he loves you. Because he loves you. Everything that he did was motivated by his love for you. It says that in, when Jesus was being crucified, about to be crucified, that he crawled onto the cross and laid himself on it. He crawled to it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That joy that was before him was you and I. The joy that allowed him to endure the cross and compelled him to was his love for you and I. We serve a wonderful God who loves us so much. Amen?
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Jesus, we thank you for your unfailing love for us. Lord, we thank you for your, um, for your word. Lord, that you very clearly spelled it out for us in scripture, who you are. And so, Lord, we are left with a decision to make on who you are. Either we believe that you are the Son of God, or we believe that you are not. Either we believe that you are our way of salvation, or we believe that you are not. And so, Lord, this morning, we want to be clear on our decision of you. We thank you, God, that this morning, that if we are in you, Jesus, no one can snatch us from you. No one can take us from you. We have this wonderful joy knowing that by putting our faith in you, Jesus, that we have the hope of heaven that no man can take from us. So Lord, we thank you this morning for the wonderful gift of salvation. And we thank you that you love us so much. So God, we pray this morning that as we sing to you, as we close out in worship, God, our hearts will be overwhelmed with the love that you have for us that our response back to you would be worship because you have loved us so much. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Jesus, we pray that you would bless this day. In Jesus' name, amen.